0: hey everybody this is mubarak shah of the corp dev world podcast today i have a special guest with you here uh, an individual who has way more experience on the financial planning and analysis side of things Um, also a host of a few podcasts Uh, one is fpna today Mm -hmm. and the other uh, financial modelers corner Um, And both of those as a CPA, I have a tremendous amount of respect for and definitely feel like our audience will gain a lot of incredible insights today from this because it's not something we talk too much on the show about. We talk, you know, sometimes high level about financial due diligence, but this is pretty core. And, you know, our audience essentially is a mix of either entrepreneurs who are running their own business and looking to potentially sell it for you know a high value, sure. or the other half is basically searchers or acquisition entrepreneurs. Small percentage of, of private equity and 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 those people. So they might already have know some of, of this. But I'd love if you can kind of just tell us, you know, start off. What is FPNA and why should? Let's start with on the buy side for those people looking to go out and buy a company or involved in M and A. Why does this matter to them?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first, let's just start with FP&A, right? FP&A stands for Financial Planning and Analysis. The most simple way to think of it is it's corporate budgeting and forecasting. Obviously, it goes a lot beyond that, but FP&A really helps build that forecast, the budget for you. They're helping to ensure what, well, the way I step back one second and I'll say is you have the accountant, which is your backward looking, right? Their job is all about keeping the books right your FP&A is all about forward looking. In addition to that budgeting and forecasting, how are you best spending the next dollar? Making sure you're being responsible. So, right, if somebody's looking, you know, at a deal, FP&A becomes, can be really helpful. One, they understand the financials. They know where you're going. They can help explain why those numbers make sense. What's gone into them? You know, they can help with, Whenever a deal is happening, right? All kinds of data is asked for, mm. right? They, they, yep. they want to know everything. And, you know, in any bigger company, fp is the ones who's pulling all that together often yeah. and coordinating that whole conversation. And, oh yeah, that's why this number does that. And that's why this is this. And, you know, sometimes they may be going through corp dev, depending on how big the company is. Sometimes it might be a working investor relations. Sometimes you're going straight to fp but they're either behind the scenes or directly, coordinating a lot of the almost all that financial data
0: got it okay okay so let's say let's say i'm a searcher i'm out wanting to buy a business um i want to buy you know like what's all the rage nowadays hvac companies right i want to buy an hvac company at what point in the process of my full acquisition timeline do i need to start thinking about a model or an fpna model and how does that look like
1: Yeah. I mean, I think from the model side, as soon as you're thinking about doing a deal, I think it makes sense to have some kind of valuation model that's going to be separate from your typical budget or forecast. Like I know we had done, you know, preliminary models when we were looking at different companies to kind of give us an idea of, all right, what's the range that we think makes sense? So you do something high level and then you, you drill in over time. I think the same thing makes sense if for both sides, right? The, the, company that's searching for somebody and the company that's being searched are both going to look at it and do something. I think for the company that's putting itself out there, you want to do that when you started. You want to be able to support kind of that range you have. If you're saying, hey, I think I'm worth 10 to 15 million, I'm gonna be like, okay, well, I look at this and I think you're worth five. Help me understand why you think you're worth this. You know, if you have that model that can explain it and help them see why, I think that's really helpful versus... Well, that's just the number I had in my head. Right? Yeah. Usually you're not going to get that number if that's your answer.
0: Yeah. And getting into kind of like the real life application of this, right? So obviously, high level disclaimer, you know, for valuations, go to a third party advisor. But for, you know, for people <laughs> yes. that are actually like, you know, trying to, you know, scope out many deals and, you know, looking on biz buy sell or working with a business broker or emailing outbound and just trying to manage deal flow right? Is there any tools you use or any kind of methods that you come up with a rough valuation? Like, is it like IBIS world or do you have any kind of good sites you use any kind of advice there?
1: You know, I really haven't had good sites I use mostly, you know, the deals I've been worked with, with, I've been in, you know, corporate large companies where I've worked with corp dev, where they've done a lot of that. But, you know, usually I would build the model and then they would stick in their valuation piece to it saying, Hey, here's where we think it has." but what I've seen on most of the deals I've been a part of, it's almost always looking at, you know, different ranges of multiples, mm-hmm. right? That's usually the quick and easy way, right? Comparable
0: profit or even EBITDA. Something. Exactly.
1: Revenue. If you're, you know, very early stage where you haven't even generated a profit yet, usually it's some multiple of, you know, maybe a forward looking 12 months of revenue or whatever. And that's why really
0: for like SaaS companies, really, software companies. Yeah, a lot
1: of times, software companies, exactly. The last company I worked at, you know, I was involved in a few, they were all software, the last mm-hmm. two. And so, yeah, d- definitely. But sometimes it can be that revenue because software companies are all about that growth. They're usually not making money. You yeah. know, if you're profitable, it can be EBITDA, you know, and it can sometimes be some other measures, but EBITDA is that most common, at least high level. Yeah. Obviously, they're a public public company, you got market value and a lot easier comparables, but we're not talking that level of company. So that's a whole yeah. different, correct? Right? Whole different analysis. Yeah, this is yeah,
0: like under hundred million or so. Essentially, you know, yeah. usually in the few million range, lower eight figures, like you know, three to fifty million is probably the range that we mostly cover. Yeah, uh,
1: the last two deals I worked on, I think we were one of them. We paid only a couple million, and the other was maybe thirty. They were pretty small. Right deals, you know, from a revenue standpoint, I think one of them was a million in revenue and the other was 10 on the last two I worked on. No, no, not 10, about 30.
0: Yeah. Got it. So I want to come back to that because I want to talk about maybe differences in models between what you did on the smaller deal versus the larger deal. But before we do that, you you told me something very interesting and very important that I think a lot of people miss, which is we talked a little bit in the past about um, budgeting model versus operating model and yep. the two different kind of, can you kind of go over that and explain what's for yeah. what the differences are? Yeah.
1: So I think, you know, a few things, right. Financial modeling. One of the podcasts I run is all about financial modeling. And often when you're building a deal model, you're, you're very much focused on what's this deal look like, mm-hmm. especially if you're from the side of you're doing the acquisition. Okay. What's the value that we think we can get by buying this company? Because otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna lose if you're just paying the forward value, whatever the company is. You want to bring some synergies to it,
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: right? So that's your operational model. And usually, most people who build an operational model aren't thinking about okay, how do I roll actuals into this? What do the cost centers look like? Yeah, you know, what's the general ledger? All those things that when you're doing a budget, you're typically thinking about because often you're going to load it to a system, right? A lot of these entrepreneurs are getting acquired or usually getting acquired by larger companies.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so
1: those larger companies want to roll it into their overall budgeting and forecasting process. Mm -hmm. And so typically, often what ends up happening is you build one model for the deal and then you build another one for operating just because the design is such in the deal model that it's not easy to operationalize it. If you have somebody that's had experience on both sides, ideally they build it in such a way that it's easy to update and roll forward so you can start using it in your budgeting and forecasting. But, you know, even then sometimes often what happens is that new company gets rolled into a certain department or it gets broke apart. And so, you, you know, you're forecasting it completely different because you're now forecasting, okay, we're gonna take the marketing and put it in the marketing department. We're gonna take those salespeople and put them in sales, yeah. you know, depending on how you integrate the deal.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And so, now going back to the initial uh, kind of uh, insight that you had which is you had those two different deals um do you, is the template generally the same like is it based off of PL and balance sheet and cash flows for um you know for every type of model or are there other drivers that come in other variables that you need to pull in
1: Sure i mean it's it's going to vary by model i think often you're looking at some operational metrics like trying to understand right? Whatever the key drivers are of the business. So, you know, for example, one of them, we were look, you know, we looked at how to, how to do with DNS services around websites. Mm-hmm. And so you're wanting to understand, okay, how many, how many calls are happening, how many customers. So I remember spending a lot, a lot of time trying to understand what the customer base looked like, what the churn was, a lot of those operational things that underlie the financial. Because really, you know, if you think about any business, for the most part, financials are a lagging indicator. Okay. Right. Yeah. You know, like take take revenue, you get it a month after. The leading indicator is how many people are coming to your website.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah.
1: Convert some, or how many leads are you getting in? So you want to understand those pieces to really understand the growing rate and to make sure they make sense to the financials. Because small companies a lot of times are on a cash basis.
0: Yeah. You know, some
1: of them I've looked at, they are definitely on a cash basis. So, right. You see rent all of a sudden is 200,000 in one month and you're like, okay, what does that actually look like when they come into an accrual based method of accounting? And so, you know, trying to make sense to go, okay, yes, we've normalized the financials and the operational makes sense with the normalized financial. Like I can understand why it flows this way. And so that's really a lot what you're looking for early. And that's where, you know, you also do a lot of, you have someone professional, like you mentioned, come in and do that due diligence and give you their take. Yeah. you know, yeah. It's not just me and the corp dev guy. You obviously want somebody to come in and analyze all that and have, you know, professional look at all those numbers and make sure they agree and things make sense and they've done their normalization. And then you're taking that and using that to further help you with your modeling.
0: Got it. Okay. Okay. And so, I mean, this would be interesting on a screen share, but one of the things that I'd love to kind of know about is um, you had mentioned that, okay, on a Q, Q you know, when people are post LOI, they'll bring in the QV e provider, the quality of yep. earnings person, that person kind of helps verify EBITDA almost as like some forensic accounting to make sure that yep. there's, you know, all that's taken care of, but where or I know th- I know models are a lot of the times used for investors or the debt financiers you know SBA mm-hmm. loan requirements or so and so what are what are like the main outputs of a good model like what what should I after setting up the model putting in the inputs what am I looking to get out of it
1: yeah so i mean your outputs are going to start with first understanding what the the revenue what the expenses what the profit looks like mm-hmm. right that could flow into the balance sheet especially if you have a lot of heavy investments and also what that cash looks like also if you're borrowing you know okay can we can we manage that what's that debt load look like Th- those are the outputs of trying to understand how those play together beyond that you're taking usually you're taking the revenue the p l side and you're taking that and running it through a number of different uh you know multiples, some kind of method to value it, whether Mm -hmm. that be a DCF and whether that be a multiple of revenue of EBITDA, usually have five or six different ways you're looking at it and saying, okay, you know, in that LOI, maybe we thought this was worth 80 million. Now that we've carved it all out, we only think it's worth 65 million. And we'd have to get to this type of multiple for it to be 80. Does that make sense? Is that attainable? So I think a lot of the ones I've done were very small, so there was no debt very Mm -hmm. small deals. So it was really looking at it and going, does the price make sense? Like one deal, we looked at it and said, okay, the revenue keeps coming down every time they give us a new forecast. Why would we do this deal? They're supposed to be hyper growth. They want us to pay for hyper growth. And, you know, it was really to help the executives get comfortable with the deal made sense. And I remember the call and one of them being, why are we even still talking about this? Let's just move on. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, this doesn't make sense. Got it. I've been in others where it's like, like-
0: you have a solid, like those are software companies where you're paying for a revenue of multiple, I mean, a multiple of revenue yep. in the future. But I guess when you're looking like historical and if you're buying a company that you're looking at, like say you're, if it's a today, you know, I know some deals going on based off of like 2022 EBITDA or, sure. you know, TTM mm-hmm. July or something, TTM June. Yep. Um. So does that change then the way the model is done or?
1: I don't know that it really changes the details of the model. I still think you need to at least look at where you think the business is going. So I think every model is going to have historic and a forward-looking period. Now, how you value it, sometimes you might be valuing it off a trailing 12 months, like you, you mentioned, or prior year. You're going to look at both. So you're going to look at different years, right? I mean, I think with any model, when you do your multiples, it's a sensitivity. It's a range. Cause there's not an agreed upon number out there that says, okay, if it's construction, it's always nine, between nine and 10, or if it's retail, you're always paying this multiple, right? Every business it's a, it's a discussion. yeah, It's a negotiation. And there's almost always things beyond just the historical that play into it. Like how much do you, you know, have they added some new customers? Are there other things? So I think no matter what, what type of business, you're gonna to want to do some forward looking to see if it makes sense for you for the growth, see if you can grow it the way you want to. And you're also gonna do some sensitivity around whatever you're looking at, whatever multiples, comparables, DCF, and NPV, you know, those different methods you're using to evaluate it, you're always gonna have several, you know, different ranges you're looking at and different assumptions. Well, what happens if the interest rate is 10% versus, you know, six percent or whatever?
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. And so when in the process with someone, and if you could give a background, like bring someone like you in and what exactly, where do you fit into the picture? Where do you help out with?
1: Yeah. So typically when I did it, like the last company I worked at, we had a full time corp dev person who was always analyzing all the deals. And as soon as he needed help with modeling and wanted someone from FP&A to be involved in helping develop that model, he'd bring me in. And so he'd have me start looking like, okay, here's the, you know, the deal room, here's all the material, start going through it and let's start kind of getting an idea of what this looks like. You know, we think this is a company we're interested in. We've gone through the initial phase and told them we have some interest. We want to dig in further. So usually I'd be brought in after there had already been some discussions as an fp and it's not always fp that does it. Sometimes, you know, they may keep it in Corp Dev and have a finance modeling person there just depends on the size of the company and the structure. But that's often where I'd be brought in, you know, on some others when we were trying to sell something and I managed that business, I was brought in early saying, Hey, we need you to help put together financials to share with others. Like we looked at selling something when I worked at American express, we were closing down a business line and we looked at selling one of our markets. Yeah. So I had to help put together all the information and answer all the questions. So I think it varies a little bit on the size of the company. And again, what kind of deal when they bring in, or, you know, fp a
0: Got it. Okay. I see. And so from what your experience, from what you've seen in the past, are there some like common mistakes that people make with their initial models or like common entrepreneurial mistakes and any recommendations yeah. on how you can avoid I, them I, or capture them?
1: Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing when it comes to having a good model built, whoever you're having build, the biggest problem in off is often des- it's poorly designed. Right, You need to think about the structure. You need to have your inputs, your calculations, and your outputs separated. You need to build in such a way so that you can adjust assumptions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it can be easy to to look at it different ways. Because if somebody comes back and says, well, I want to see it this way, and you didn't think about design, you'll be like, I'll get back to you next week. Versus if you've designed it really well, it might take you two minutes to make that change. So I think the biggest thing people need to think about and make sure they have is somebody who knows how to design And think about structure of a model, right? It's just like anything. The example I like to give when it comes to kind of modeling in that structure is I compare it to a house. Nobody would build a house without blueprints, right? You'd be crazy and hiring a qualified contractor. Yet we do it all the time with financial modeling. We don't design it. We don't have a qualified modeler. And then we wonder why it's so hard to update and change. And it's impossible to follow because you got hard-coded numbers and just a big mess, So that's the biggest thing, like
0: some initial calculations and then people just grow it and add tabs (laughs) and add more information. Right. That's the yeah Exactly. You start just adding on to the house, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah. I'll just
1: throw a room here. I'll throw a room there. And then you're looking at the thing going, okay, when does it fall over? And I start over.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Okay. And then do you have any recommendations for like, again, these are lower mid market acquisition entrepreneurs, um, for like FP&A tools or software? So for example, like I know QuickBooks has like a budget model um, or budget feature that they came out with. Is that something good or is that like too weak? Like what are your kind of- Yeah,
1: uh, so I think there's a couple of things. You know, these smaller companies, I think it's good to look at a fractional CFO, somebody who is giving you some advisory services beyond just bookkeeping, mm-hmm. right? So often FP&A people will do that. Sometimes they're former CFOs, but they give you a little bit of support beyond that. As far as tools, you know, Obviously, the biggest are Excel and Google Sheets. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, there are a number of tools that have come up, come out over the last few years to design for small, you know, kind of startup, those early stage. And there's a number of different ones out there in the SMB market, all the way from really small forecaster, helps you build your model when you're first trying to raise capital. If you get a little further along, Finmark's one that's out there. Uh, There's one called Telemetry. Jenny, there's quite a few different ones, but if you have a good understanding, you're comfortable with the spreadsheet, you don't necessarily need to go to a tool. But they are becoming more common just because even small companies, there's so much data today. Right? Yeah. And you want to run different scenarios that that can be challenging to do in a spreadsheet. I mean, there's even one out there, a new spreadsheet that's very much designed for kind of that budgeting and forecasting for early stage companies called uh, Equals it does some unique things. It's quite inexpensive.
0: Okay. Interesting. I actually haven't heard of that one, but how, how long would you say, I'm going to check that out. Um, But I know obviously it's a, it's a living document, right? A financial model. It's always kind of being updated based on new information, uh, changes, you know, changes in trends and activity in the business. But how long should one feel like it takes to set up an initial model? Is this something that's like, then in a few minutes a few hours a couple of days like how
1: i it, i think it depends on the complexity for but you know your base model if it's a fairly straightforward business there's not a ton of complexity i mean i would say 20 probably 20 hours someone can set that up again part of it depends on what's the what's the historical looks like a lot of times yeah. it's the normalizing and the cleaning like cuz if you want it to be on an accrual basis and they've been on a cash basis you got to start looking at those actuals and do all the normalization the yeah. mo- setting up the model usually isn't difficult especially you know some of your base assumptions it can get a little tricky if you have you know a lot of different drivers for revenue or you want to look at it a lot of different ways but setting up a base should be pretty consistent right each each of your sheets should have a similar layout you should be able to tie it all together like you do with any you know, three integrated three statement model. And if you're using best practice, that part's not difficult. I mean, you can build a basic three statement model if you have all the data and it doesn't have to be clean, probably in a day, you know, or less. Okay. okay.
0: But still, still good. That's still a good amount of time. You know, like a search entrepreneur or somebody who has, you know, mm-hmm. going through a bunch of stuff. That's that's a full day or full multiple days. So, and you know, if in reality, if they're cranking it out, you know, two hours at a time. Like that'll take a week or two to get together. Correct.
1: Yeah. To get a D. De- I mean, if you're doing something back of the envelope, maybe you can get it done in 30, 40 minutes. But the example I give is, so FMI, which is the premier accreditation for financial models, makes you build an integrated three-statement model to pass their test in four hours.
0: Interesting. And okay.
1: that's a challenge for people, right? A lot of people aren't able to pass that. So you think that's a basic, with some scenarios, basic integrated three-statement model. You're going to build at least something like that for a deal case.
0: Mhm. Right? Yeah. And
1: this is someone who's an experienced modeler. I see. At least cuz if it, do, you got to have a certain level of experience to be able to do that in 4 hours. Correct. So yeah, it's going to yeah. take some time. You know, if you're just doing a quick P&L and you want to get a general idea with some multiples, you could probably throw something together in an hour.
0: Yeah. Right. And so sorry. why did you for example yourself want to get into I, the financial I planning? Sorry. Oh, no she's so cute. No. Worries. Close
1: the door. <laughs>
0: no worries. um so why do you personally feel like you got into the financial modeling world like it seems pretty difficult pretty in the weeds pretty in the details what excited you about it too you yeah. know probably almost like you're coming up on probably being top 10 of financial modelers in especially the linkedin community and overall like the internet <laughs> And yeah, so-, so, how,
1: so how it worked for me, I mean, I still have a lot of room to improve on my financial modeling and that's really where I got more interested in it. I started in finance, in FP&A and I was never taught, hey, inputs, outputs, calculation. Nobody sat down and said, here's how you logically build a model. And so most of my first models were garbage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I like to call them Franken models. Yeah, I, yeah, You know, if I if I went back and looked at some of my early models now, I'm like, okay, can I burn that down? Yeah, You know, yeah, yeah. like,
0: and I so I think that,
1: for yeah. me, I really started to get into it because I just felt like it's an area we don't do a good job in educating people of the importance of design and and thinking about how to really structure a model right. And so I came across FMI, and that really interested me. I started to do the FPNA, and so it's something I've continued to build out, and I've got to know a lot of the best people. And the more I talk to them, the more I realize how much better I would like to get at modeling. I think it's a, it's a fun area. I've always enjoyed finance. And so for me now, you know, a lot of what I do is helping others by bringing some of the best in the world and talking to them and sharing their stories and, and their journeys and helping people realize it's really about spending that time up front and then just work. It's, you know, it's not easy to build a model if you don't ever, if you rarely ever do it practice, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so so for so someone to then, okay, let's say they we understand that we need to have the base historical data, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of times, as you mentioned, these smaller companies have cash basis financials and that doesn't translate well to accrual. So you need to make sure you're comparing apples to apples if you're, you know, basing your forecast off of um, your historicals uh, outside of like drivers, right? So like revenue drivers, like you had a great example of, okay, there's customers would be or website visits would be a future indicator rather than rather than a lagging indicator um outside of drivers and then like putting just a percentage increase so like if i'm making a three-year model or so out into the future you know expenses increasing by a similar percentage related to revenue based on historicals is that kind of all i need to do really to get a good model or what other intricacies are involved? Yeah,
1: with- I mean, I think there's two different ways to look at it. I think it's good to have some of those base assumptions like, hey, we can grow it by X. But I think before you even do that, you need to know what are the key, your key drivers. So an example would be, let's say every 50 customers I I have, I need to add a new truck, right? Okay, and so you need yeah. to understand what those primary drivers are. Yeah. And build in That's those assumptions versus just cuz rarely ever like 3% growth are things linear. Yeah. Right? There's almost there's all kinds of step functions. You got your fixed and your variable. So understanding those key things that really drive and turn the the knobs and your expenses and your revenue and build based on that. Those should be your assumptions. What I ca- like to call the, you know, if you think of the 80-20 principle. Is what are your 80s? And there's usually, you know, anywhere from 3 to five, maybe a couple more that you really need to focus on, then all the other stuff you could probably just grow on yeah. some simple percentage,
0: right? But I see your point. Like, So like if you're handling a certain amount of customers, but after hitting a certain threshold of customers, now you need to bring on another service advisor, a customer success person. Now, all of a sudden, that's a massive bump up because you're adding a whole nother layer of payroll. I see. It, Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that's the key thing to understand is just to think through what what's that key driver of when you're going to have either a lowering or an increase in expense. Like if it's a business you're winding down, okay, as we take out every 50 customers, we can reduce one customer support person, or we can close down you know, one branch or whatever.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I like that. So, so let's say I'm a beginner or I'm listening to this podcast and I know that you know, I need to start getting into this. Um, do I just go onto YouTube? Do you have any cool resources for beginners that, you know, that can get introduced yeah. to? How, how do I like get into this?
1: Yeah. I'll, so I'll give a couple resources. And again, it depends on the level you want to get into. I do have a an intro level uh, modeling design principles, So I don't get into how to do the model. I get into how to think about designing a model. It's really around the design. There are a lot of great resources out there, you know, from if you're somebody who wants to get better at modeling and really learn to build models, Chris Riley is a great resource out there. He has a lot of really good courses. Um, Danielle Stein Fairhurst has some really good stuff. know, if you really want to become an accredited modeler, like if you're serious about it, getting the Accreditation from Financial Modeling Institute is a great, great way to go. They're the one who sponsor our podcast. They have a, a 10-hour video series that teaches you the fundamentals of building a three-statement model. So, right, these are getting more, if you're like, hey, I really want to model. If you just want to learn the basics, sometimes picking up a a book or you know, there's people you can follow on YouTube, it it depends on you know what level you want to get at. But the resources that are out there, there are a, t- a ton of resources today. There really is on modeling.
0: Nice. Okay. No, that's helpful. And I'll put all those links in the description below and in the show notes. But I see that you're also going to an event uh, next month or you're going to be, Potentially speaking at an event AFP. Yes. That's nice. Okay. What's uh, what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So I, AFP is called the Association for Finance Professionals. It's one uh, of the largest corporate organizations. They have about 6,000 people attend the event. It's mostly hmm. treasury. And then they also have fp So I'm speaking about building a best practice FPNA team with a couple of friends of mine, a guy by the name of Ron Montero and Andrew Childress at it. I'm a a member of the AFP, I just completed their FPNA certification. They offer a professional certification. I spoke at the event last year, so I'm a big, you know, big fan of what they're doing. And so, and it's San Diego, right? Who doesn't want to go to San Diego?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to
1: take the family and have a little vacation, and then attend a conference for a couple of days.
0: Nice. So, no, that's awesome. No, I appreciate this. This is great. I have one last question for you, which sure. I, you get all the time, which is, but it's irrelevant now because. Um, you know, you're, you're a real practitioner, you're in the game. And so this is like advice. Hopefully you can provide a little bit for the people actually doing it, you know, on a day-to-day basis or wanting, needing a model to get to their, what they want, whether it's an acquisition, whether it's like dealing with, you know, raising money, raising capital, going to investors, um, AI, right. So that is now there's like (laughs) finance, GPT coming out, um, all these types of crazy large language models. Um, Your honest opinion right now for the finance world, is it more just like fluff and we'll see what happens? Or do you think that there's something that like some people here should look into and follow because it's going to be something groundbreaking?
1: I I definitely think AI is here to stay. I think it's what I've heard it referred to as the first productivity revolution instead of the fourth industrial revolution. And the reason I like that is it's, it it can transform how productive you are. Now, you know, there are some real challenges with language learning models and numbers. So you got to be careful how it's built. I think it goes far, far beyond just language learning models. And a good example is you take chat GPT and you use code interpreter. I can load an Excel file to it. I can give it a public financials and have it do all the ratios for me.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Right. So I could take now. I wouldn't give and it my company data.
0: That's been accurate for you. Like,
1: yeah, it's been it's been accurate. If I'm using code interpreter, okay, it's been good. I ch- I checked it all there. But yeah. if you're just asking it to do it, you're gonna without using code interpreter, not loading that file and having it write the Python, you probably run into some problems. That's why I say that's a little different than the learning module. Yeah. What I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot of tools doing is they're training the learning model on data that's in the database. So they're pulling back numbers to help you write the story, to help you understand what's happening versus doing calculations with the learning module. I eventually think we will get to the point where they'll be able to write, you know, three statements for us. But I think we're AI, not just language learning models, but AI in general. But I think we're a ways out. I encourage, I teach it in some of my courses a little bit about it. I encourage everybody to at least be playing with it learning it because there are a lot of things that can help you do help you write a formula, help you, you know, write a code, help you better that email, whatever it might be. There are plenty of things it can do. And I think we're just right now scratching the surface.
0: Got it. Got it. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. That and co-
1: what about you? What do you think about it?
0: So I was going to go with what you said initially of like, I saw that in the text world and the content generation and generative AI is great. But then I was seeing how people are able to manipulate numbers and how it's not super accurate where it's like, it's not like Excel, where I don't think as long as you have not made a typo, you're never going to have an error, right? ChatGPT has been able to quote unquote hallucinate yep. and, and have those yeah. So I like this code interpreter feature. I didn't know that that could be an add-on. I know what it's used for from a coding perspective. I haven't looked too much into it to see how it could be used from the finance element because I was kind of like in my head, I was like, okay. Like they're still having issues with numbers. Like this might be a 2025 thing that I visited, you know, there. So, but I appreciate that insight into Code Interpreter because um, I know coders and programmer friends of mine's like say that that's a game changer and it's literally changed their day-to-day life. Um,
1: yes, I've heard that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So seeing, I I'll probably have to learn a little bit as to how that works with Excel and loading documents into that. But that's that's pretty cool. I'm going to check that out. Awesome. Um, So yeah, I mean, I appreciate this. I'd love to have you on again in the future. Maybe once I pop up my, like you kind of almost made me want to have a proper YouTube channel because I think doing a screen share and showing the actual, like, especially in financial modeling, like that is the key here. So that's great. I I appreciate the time. Um, Anything final from you can, uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more or follow you?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, LinkedIn is the best place. That's, that's the first place you can always find me on LinkedIn my website is called the and it's A N D because you can't do an ampersand in a website. And yeah. then if someone wants to try listening to one of my podcasts, you'll find Financial Modelers Corner or FPNA Today on you know all the platforms out there: Spotify, Apple, Google, whatever one you listen to. It's on pretty much all of them.
0: Nice. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I appreciate the time and hopefully our listeners love this.
1: Thanks. Appreciate it, Mark. Take care.